You know, there's certain foods that go down really easy. Um, you don't have to work at them at all. Things like soup. Soup just goes down easy. Milk chocolate slides down easy. Honey, easy. You know, pasta with creamy sauce on there just goes down easy. And then you've got foods that don't go down so easy, right? Uh, chicken wings with the bones still in them. Or an orange that you've got to work at to peel. Or a turkey that you have to carve. Or ribs you're trying to get all the meat off of it. You have to work at it. And then you have food that is really hard to get at. Lobster, crap. You know, I, don't, uh, I don't eat either lobster or crab, but I have a lot of respect for people who do because you're committed when you need a toolbox to get into your dinner. It's commitment right there. But certain things go down really easy and, and they just slide right down and, and other food doesn't. And, and today's text is Mark chapter 10, which is a text where Jesus gives a teaching. It doesn't go down easy. In fact, there's a lot of teachings when you read very carefully through the teachings of Christ. There's a lot of things he says that don't go down very easy. There's a lot of passages through Scripture. They're like milk chocolate. They just go down so easy. But then you come to these things, these other sayings of Jesus, and you really got to work at them. But here's the thing. Once you open it up and chew on it, you find out that everything that Jesus says is sweet and good so good it'll change you, so sweet you'll want it to. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked the children. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took the children in his arms and he blessed them and he laid his hands on them. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and he knelt before him and he asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man said to Jesus, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And disheartened by the saying, the young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and he said to the disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, With man it's impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. And Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and we followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, 
There is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And talking and taking the twelve again, Jesus began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. This is God's word. Now this passage gives us this striking contrast that we need to consider. A child who's incapable of meeting their own needs and a person who is so successful that by all appearances they can meet all of their own needs. And the children were being devalued and they weren't being given any dignity. And so Jesus gives them the utmost value and he gives them this unprecedented dignity. In verse 15, Jesus says, unless you relate to the kingdom of heaven like a child, you won't inherit it. Now, if children were born in a state of innocence, and in order to be accepted by God, you needed to be in a state of innocence, that's bad news. Because nobody in this room, starting with this preacher, is in a state of innocence. And and, And even if you are here and you happen to be delusional enough to think, no preacher, I disagree with you, right here as I sit, I am in a state of innocence, it's still too late for you. Because even if that were true, P.S. it isn't, you've got a huge track record that is not innocent. So if what Jesus was saying was, children are innocent and you have to be innocent like a child, that would be very bad news. But Jesus knows that children are not born innocent. The scriptures explicitly teach none of us are born innocent. Children are born dependent. And that's what makes this all good news. Because little children need to be taught. Most of you have little kids, you know this already. All the parents already know this, right? That little children need to be taught constantly how not to be selfish. Right? Because their natural state, our natural state, the natural state of the human condition is self-absorption. And we have to be constantly taught not to be self-absorbed. I remember when our kids were little, Rebecca and Isaiah were fighting about something. I can't remember what it was. Something happened. And Rebecca was saying to Isaiah, it's your fault. And he said back, no, it's your fault. And she said, it's your fault. And he said, no, it's your fault. And there's little Nigel, five years younger than his brother, eight years younger than his sister, doesn't even really understand what's going on, can barely string sentences together. And there's little Nigel with a soother in his mouth. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. And he, and he takes a soother out of his mouth and he says, no, it's my fault. It's mine. He doesn't know what fault is. All he knows is he should probably have it. And that is the human condition curved in. And so Jesus says, unless we're like children who can see our need, see our 
our need for his grace and be dependent like little children, nobody inherits the kingdom of heaven. Which is why later in the text you hear that, that there's that famous line, you know, it's impossible but with God all things are possible. And that gets conflated to mean all kinds of things, you know. Do you think that if I believe God enough we, I could, you know, do this incredible thing? Of course, with God all things are possible. Well, there's this little thing um, in theology we like to call, what's, it, what's the word? For, oh yeah, context. And what's being said here is nobody born in the condition of being curved in can be saved. Only by God's grace. That's why Jesus says, well, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. But with God, anybody who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Romans chapter 10. But with God, it's not possible. By his grace. His grace stretches further than our sin. His perfection stretches further than our state of guilt. And so, Jesus gives this, this teaching. And as uh, the offering was being uh, received earlier, or sorry, l- earlier in the liturgy when Jasper was up here, he was talking about uh, how little kids don't always know what they need. They're crying in their crib. But they know who they need, though. Little kids, they know exactly who they need. They just don't know what they need. And this is what this text gives us. We've got to be like these little children. And so we gather together as a church every Sunday and we worship and we celebrate not because we're innocent but because we're dependent on the only one who ever was. And we are marveling at his goodness, Christ alone. And so right after Jesus calls his followers to this posture of utter dependence, we encounter this rich young ruler who's living life with a posture of self-reliance. You see this juxtaposition in the text? It's amazing. So in verse 18, he falls on his knees. Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, or he says, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. What's this guy after? This man knows something is missing. That's why he's running. Look at the text. He's not walking. He's running and he's kneeling and he's pleading. But he's young, rich, influential, he basically, I mean, that, that, that's the unholy trinity of moralism right there. If you could just be young, rich, and wealthy, I mean, that's, isn't that the point of human existence? He's, he already has all those things. But he's running, and he's kneeling, and he's pleading, and he's saying something is missing. He's totally successful by every standard on the outside, uh, but he's totally, he's totally empty on the inside. He wants these answers you remember the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, which if you're keeping track, it was 83 movies ago. Uh, the first one, there was this pirate's curse. And no matter how much wine they drank, and no matter how much sex they had, no matter what, it was just another, it was like, it was like it wasn't enough. And they were depicted as like these skeletal, half alive, dead, the wine just ran through the ribcage and landed on the, the, the rotted boards of the, of the boat. It was this picture of the inability to be satisfied. And that's what this poor guy is going through. He's checked all the boxes and he's on his knees in front of Jesus. Now, it's possible to accumulate wealth in two ways, okay? The first way is you can work hard and you can be honest and you can become wealthy that way. Uh, The second way is you can take advantage of people and you can be driven by greed and that makes your work dishonest, right? Those are the two ways, you know, broadly speaking, you can accumulate wealth. Now, today, we've grown so accustomed to um, 
scandals motivated by financial gain, you'd almost expect the disciples to say, way to go, Jesus, tell the rich they can't be saved. But that's not what the disciples do. The disciples actually say, if that guy can't be saved, who can be saved? That's what the disciples, look at the text. They're not like, yeah, Jesus, stick it to the wealthy guy. They're thinking, oh, wait a minute, aren't we all supposed to be the wealthy guy? Isn't that the picture of where our religion is taking us, Jesus? Young, healthy, rich, blessing of God, favor on your life stuff, hashtag blessed, writing books, you know? Like, isn't that where this whole thing is supposed to be going? That's their response. They say, if this guy can't be saved, who can be saved? And the reason for that is because culturally, the, the ancient, ancient Israel believed that a financially prosperous life was the picture of God's blessing. They have a precedent for that because Abraham loved God, was faithful, and he was wealthy. So they have a, they have a precedent for God bringing wealth into someone's life, and so they understood it this way. Many texts throughout the Old Testament continually promise if you trust in me and if you will turn to me and if you will worship me, you'll be blessed. It'll go well with you. But of course, you've got millennia of, of uh, history throughout the whole Old Testament where they just keep worshiping other gods and it doesn't go well with them. So this is their paradigm. They're looking at this guy and they're going, the favor of God is on him because he's young, he's rich, he's wealthy. And if he can't be saved, then none of us can be saved. Job's friends thought the same thing. That's why Job's friends talk the way they talk. Right? Suffering shows up. The whole book of Job, by the way, it is in the Old Testament canon to throw a stick in the spokes of the idea that your obedience just equals blessing. That's what the whole book of Job is about, is to be like, the devil was like, the only reason this guy's worshiping you is because he's, he's young, he's rich, he's healthy. Take that stuff away, and he's not going to worship you anymore. And God goes, okay. And God permits the whole thing to happen. That's the theology of Job, is that the, the commentary on your life is not your financial position. Your commentary on your life is the cross, God's great grace. So anyways, this is, why this, this is why the disciples don't know what to do with this. But what we learn from Jesus' response here is that Jesus isn't that simplistic about wealth. God is not that simplistic about wealth. Jesus, Jesus doesn't condemn the man for having wealth. Jesus doesn't criticize the way he gained his wealth. But Jesus also doesn't agree with the disciples who think that God's blessing is evidenced by wealth. The disciples are being pretty formulaic about it. Right? If you're influential, you're ethical, and you're rich, that's the favor of God. Well, you can be influential, ethical, and rich and not worship God. This city is full of those people this morning. This city is full of people who are healthier, wealthier than you, not worshiping God, and no matter what you do, you're never going to be as wealthy as them. Some of you, no matter what you do, you're not going to be as healthy as them. So that cannot be, at the core of your theology, your understanding of God's blessing and favor. Otherwise, you're all going to have a crisis of faith. And so, Jesus doesn't criticize the man for any of this stuff. I want you to look at how graciously Jesus deals with this young guy. There's ten commandments. We know this, right, from Exodus 20? There's ten commandments. But look at what Jesus does. Jesus says, you know these commandments. And then what Jesus does is, Jesus skips over the commandments at the beginning. And he lists the commandments at the end. Jesus says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your own father and your mother. Jesus lists all the commandments that tell us how to relate to others. Jesus doesn't list the commandments that tell us how to relate to God. Jesus lists all the commandments that will guide the society into flourishing. And Jesus doesn't list the commandments 
that start the whole thing off, that guide your heart into flourishing. So what Jesus does is Jesus is very gracious, and he looks on the man and he says, he lists the ethical commandments that guide society into flourishing, and of course, the young man says, hey, I've been doing this since I was a kid, right? This is what happens. He says, I've been keeping these commandments since I was a kid. He's been ethical. He's relating to others in a good way, right? Jesus is preparing him to consider, yes, I know how you're relating to others, but how do you relate to God? which is how this whole thing started. Good teacher. And he says, oh, really? I'm a good teacher? There's nobody good but God. So why don't you get rid of everything and follow God? This is where this whole thing's headed, right? So look at what happens here. It's so, it's so gracious and gentle the way Jesus is with this man. So the young guy, is, he's healthy, he's wealthy, he's living a morally upright life, right? He's ethical, because he's keeping those commandments. He didn't gain his wealth by some scandal. He's been a hardworking young man. But he's still running. He's still kneeling. He's still seeking. Right? Because he, internally he has no peace. He has no rest. So in verse 21, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And said to him. Right? Do we, it's so important for us to catch this. Jesus didn't condemn him. Right? John chapter 3, verse 17 says that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it because the world was condemned already. Right? This guy's condemned already. And now he's running and kneeling and pleading and seeking, and Jesus' response is this tremendous gentleness and grace. And so what, what does he do? What, is, what does grace look like for this guy? It looks like him saying, sell everything. Give it to the poor. You're going to have treasure in heaven. Now come follow me. What is Jesus trying to do? Crush him? Destroy him? No. Jesus is trying to liberate him. Jesus is trying to give him the answer to what he's, which is why he's on his knees in the first place. So then what happens is Jesus gets to the commandments that are actually at the heart of his restlessness. By saying, because when Jesus says, sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow me, if, if that young man did that, then he would be following the first four commandments. I'll show you. The first commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, but wealth is his God. The second commandment says, Thou shalt not bow down to any idols, but his whole life is oriented around bowing down to wealth, which is his idol. The third commandment says, Thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. But this guy is calling himself a follower of God, but wealth is his God. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. You think taking the Lord's name in vain means you hit your thumb with a hammer and you say Jesus Christ in a derogatory way? Well, that's one way to take the Lord's name in vain. But that's not, that wasn't in the context. When, when God was given Moses the Ten Commandments and he was scribing it on the tablets, I can tell you in the ancient world there were, they weren't like, yeah, so make sure when you're trying to hammer that stud in and you hit your finger with the rock, yell out something else instead. Then you won't take the Lord's name in vain. You think that's the Old Testament context of this? Right? Not a chance. Yell out, bang, oh, A-10! There, whew, didn't take the Lord's name in vain. Yell out one of those Egyptian gods instead. Oh, no, taking the Lord's name in vain means you take his nature, his character, all of who he is, and then put it on something that doesn't represent, that, that doesn't reflect on him at all. Church, you and I, we are all guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain with our lives with the lives that we live. 
How often are you and I not loving? I mean, we can go through the Ten Commandments. We've broken all of them. All of them. Now, so what Jesus is doing is Jesus is like, listen, get up and follow me. But God is his wealth. So he's, he's breaking the first commandment. His wealth is an idol. He's breaking the second commandment. He's calling himself a, a follower of God, but really wealth is his God. So he's breaking the third commandment. And the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day. How can you enter into rest when God is not your God? The whole reason we have the story is he has no rest. He's running. He's kneeling. He's pleading. He's saying, what do I have to do to be saved? I don't care how much you go into the synagogue if, if internally your conversation is, I hope I'm doing enough to be saved. Sitting at home on a Sunday, inactive, all day, worrying that you're not keeping the Sabbath, is not keeping the Sabbath. This guy's broken all four commandments. This is what Jesus is getting at. Hey, sell all your stuff, follow me. He's trying to save him. This is what's going on here. Your wealth is your God. Lay down your little God. Follow me. Be fulfilled by me. Find rest for your incessant restlessness in me. And so this rich young ruler is, by God's standard, a miserable failure. But he's a miserable failure who came to Jesus on his knees. And what does God do? How does God respond to miserable failures who come to him on their knees? And this is what we see, which is so gracious. He loves him. What does Jesus do for this man? Who, after looking in the mirror with gut-wrenching honesty, comes to the conclusion that something is missing in his life. He looks on him and he loves him. What does Jesus do with you when you, look, when you look in the mirror each week with gut-wrenching honesty, aware that you have chased up, that, that you're, really your trust and your rest and your worship is not in God and the grace of God, but you have those weeks where you just kind of put in your time. I haven't shown my face at Redeemer for a while. I'll pop in, make sure nobody asks any questions. I mean, I know nobody here would do that. I'm just being hypothetical. Other churches where there's unsanctified people do that, not all of these people. Right? We have these weeks, don't we? We do these things, don't we? I'm not speaking down to you. My, my heart wanders every week. I'm not up here because I have this figured out. I'm up here because I'm desperate. I drew the short straw. I have to preach this to the rest of you. But I'm just like you. Who's the head of the church? The pastor? No, Christ. So all of us together do this. You see this? And, but what does Jesus do? He looks on us and he loves us. It's profound and it's beautiful. He meets your confession with welcoming, rescuing, reorienting grace. What is he doing with this guy? He's welcoming him. He's inviting him. He's wanting to rescue him. This is an invitation to reorient him. Right? Jesus is saying, stop worshiping the thing you think defines you and validates you and fulfills you. And let me define and validate and fulfill you. Because Christ is the one who created you and redeems you and restores you and in the end will raise you. As Augustine in his confessions wrote, we were created for you, O God, and our hearts are restless and they will remain restless until they find their rest in you. And so, then something sobering happens. Jesus looks on him and he loves him. And then what happens? The young man chooses a life of worship to his Savior. But it's not Jesus. That's what happens. Verse 22 says, the young man left sorrowful. I just need you to know here, I, I, I try not to get, you know, 
do too much Greek because number one, I'm a novice at Greek, and number two, you're probably not all that interested in Greek. But I gotta tell you, there's certain passages where the Greek just makes this thing go from black and white to full color, and this is one of them, okay? So here we go. This doesn't mean he was gloomy. This doesn't mean he was having an Eeyore moment, okay? The Greek phrase, you know, you leave sorrowful, it's ipethen lipumenos, and lipumenos in the Greek is the same word, the root word of it, lipeo, is the same word that was used when Jesus was in the garden sweating blood before he went to the cross. It's the same word that the Greek Septuagint uses when it translates the Old Testament, originally written in Hebrew, but then translated into Greek in Genesis chapter 3 describing childbirth. Let's put this all together, shall we? The pain of childbirth, the pain of Christ about to go to the cross, the pain of leaving your money. There we go. Now, every mother in here will let you know that the pain of childbirth belongs in its own category. You're not allowed to put anything else in there. Don't be a fool and have something happen to your body and then compare it to childbirth in the presence of a mother because you will be passionately and rightly corrected. You have a boo-boo. That's what you have. It doesn't matter what happened. Compared to childbirth, it's a boo-boo. Here's just a free tip for any of the young men who are in here. If your head comes off and a doctor has to sew it back on, and he sews it back on backwards, and you have to go through the rest of your life learning to do life in reverse, that's a boo-boo <laughs> compared to childbirth. Okay? Now, let's be really clear on what's being conveyed in the Greek about when, what's going on in this young man's heart when he leaves. Without his wealth, without his money, the idea of leaving it, it's crushing grief. Like Christ contemplating losing his life on the cross. Like being doubled over in contractions. He couldn't forsake his little savior. Now, Jesus was grieved at the thought of losing his father. Because his father was the source of his joy, his life, his identity. The rich young ruler was grieved at the thought of losing his wealth. Because his wealth was the source of his life, his joy, his identity. To lose something and have that loss sadden you, that's a part of humanity. But to lose something and the thought of losing that thing utterly destroy you, that's idolatry. We're not just dealing with the sadness of humanity, we're dealing with gut-wrenching, soul-level idolatry. And so what for you and I, as I was preparing the sermon, I'm thinking about my own life here, and so I sit with you in this, but what about us could cause us to orient our lives around it with such a way that the idea of leaving it would devastate us and destroy us? Where What in your life could climb up into the throne and take that place? I have things. So do you. Sometimes those things climb up into the throne. What are those things? Right For you... Maybe it is wealth and the lifestyle that facilitates it, like this rich young ruler. Not even necessarily because you have wealth. Some people who have wealth are an idolatry to their wealth. But you know, a lot of people, most statistically speaking, most of us do not have wealth and we're in idolatry to wealth precisely because we don't have wealth. And we're in idolatry to the idea of what that life would actually be if we did have the wealth. It could be that. Or it could be none of that. Maybe you're sitting here and you're on your high horse because you're like, boy, I could have just taken this morning off because money doesn't matter to me. But maybe it's your family and your children that, and your marriage and your, or the idea of marriage or the idea of, 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 of uh, children 
that climbs up into that throne. The relationships, the friends, the romance, the healthy body, the status, the success, the prominence, the importance, the influence, the being able to sit when somebody says to you, hey, so what's going on? What's new in your life? The, you know, the idea that you could just tell them something tremendous, you know. My life has purpose. Boy, I can't wait for the next time somebody asks me to say what's new because, boy, will I be able to tell them. Or you dread the idea that somebody's going to say, hey, so what's going on? And your answer is nothing. I'm living a very ordinary life and I'm content in Jesus and I'm good with that. No, it's just, what is it that climbs up into the throne? We all have these things that can climb up into the throne. And so if we take these good things, and you've heard me say this many times, but if we take these good things and then we elevate them to be the ultimate thing, and the thought of losing that thing destroys us. Right? This young man rejects the invitation to worship Jesus because wealth is his Jesus. Right? Now maybe later after the resurrection, this guy repented and came to faith in Christ, and we don't have that uh, recorded, so I can't uh, speak to that, but we just have this text to look at to go, yeah, he's having contractions over this because his wealth became his scorecard and his ID card. See, when Jesus says, follow me, and he won't, that's what you realize. It's the scorecard and the ID card. You and I have scorecards. You have scorecards. You have ID cards. What are those things? We live in a world where, our, where whatever our scorecards and ID cards are quite often get posted to social media so we can scroll through everybody else's highlight reel as they, you know. There's great things about social media, and that's one of the things that's not so great. You know? And we can look at that and go, you know, What's my scorecard? What's my ID card? But the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, it liberates our soul from the scorecards. It liberates our soul from the ID cards. We are free from, from scorekeeping. We are free from having, you know, identity curating. We're free from it in Christ and in the gospel. That's what Jesus holds out to this young man. This is what Jesus continually holds out to us and everybody in this room. And so remember that the grace of the gospel, it's showcased in this juxtaposition, right? We can take the posture of those children, and we can come to Jesus in honest dependence, or we can reject Jesus through a posture of self-reliance, right? One of the embarrassing things, and I hate to confess this, but the reason why I don't pray nearly as often as I should, and when I say should, I don't mean there's a certain amount that's acceptable to God, I just mean the reason I don't pray as much as I should is because I'm self-reliant. It's embarrassing. Do you know how long I'll go with a problem or a thing or a situation? or a, you know, There have been Sunday mornings where I have come to preach the gospel, got to that room to start going over my notes, and realized I had not prayed yet. If you'd like to revoke your membership now, some of you may want to do... You know, your pastor is not... There are, that's how much I struggle... In my heart and my mind with self-reliance. Just kind of doing things. That's embarrassing. I didn't put that in my notes because I wasn't going to say it. Now I say it, now I regret that I said it. But I'm just letting you know, I can't be the only one in this room that lives with that embarrassing level of self-sufficiency. Right? We can do it. We can relate to Jesus just like this rich young ruler. And you know what North Americans do? We fall, if, you, if, you've, if you've been scarred in the ditch of legalism, then it'll be very tempting to jump into the other ditch. Many of us, that's our story. 
right? Most, I haven't met very many people who come to Redeemer or Christians in general who come to me like, man, my background was just wild, wild licentiousness. I went to a church where everything was allowed and nothing was called sin. Most of the case, all of us tell our church horror stories and it's legalism. And we jump into the other ditch of lawlessness where it's very easy then to live in this reliant posture, self-reliant posture. And God is like this kind of thing in the background when I really need him, then I'll pray. Because, you know, you shouldn't pray every day. That's legalism. And when I really need him, I'll come and worship. Because you don't need to come every Sunday, because that's legalism. It is? This is the de- so the worship of Christ and marveling at the Savior and coming to our knees and saying, what must I do? There's this restlessness inside me. And Jesus says, I can get rid of that restlessness. Come follow me. And our response to following him is to be like, well, that just sounds like legalism. You need a lexicon and you need to research the word legalism. And the the definition of legalism isn't follow Jesus. So, this is what we get this contrast of these little innocent, or sorry, not innocent, these little dependent children and this independent man who has no need for Christ. And Jesus is not a needy king who needs our worship to validate him. He's a generous king. He calls for our worship so our restless souls can find rest in him. That's why he said in verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man uh, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they're self-reliant. Why is that a hard teaching? It doesn't go down like milk chocolate. You've got to really work at it and crack it open and be like, actually, that'll save my soul. Wow, the, 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 the liberation and the peace that is available in that. And then as we close, you get to verse 32 and 34, where Jesus, after this, he predicts his death and resurrection again. He gets to the gospel again. Why? He's giving his followers a reason to recalibrate. He's giving them a reason to relate to all of life differently again. Because this gospel, this life, this death, this resurrection of Jesus for our sin is why he could look with eyes of love on the rich young ruler. Jesus identifies with the rich young ruler because at 33 years of age, about to lay down everything, Jesus is the true rich young ruler. He's rich. For our sakes became poor. Laid it all down forsook it all, died so that we could live, have it all, be liberated. Jesus looks at the rich young ruler with eyes of love. He's like, I understand the pain you're going through of having to lay everything down because I'm. that's where I'm going. That's what I'm about to do. Jesus is the true rich young ruler. Contrary to every other king who sought to amass wealth to establish his kingdom, Jesus is going to give up all his wealth to establish his kingdom. And you and I can live with a pervasive sense of peace and lasting joy in this life because united to Christ, we are assured of an eternally prosperous life. And so in his great grace, Jesus calls us to turn from our little gods and their insufficiency to enjoy the rest and the strength and the peace that is found as we worship him for his sufficiency, he is the true rich young ruler. Second Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Amen.